following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Let's see if the air conditioning can keep up with <laughs> 60 plus people. As most of you know, we uh, the community purchased the building seven blocks west of here on, on this street, uh, 26th Street, at the corner, corner of 27th Avenue. So it's taking us longer than we thought to renovate it, but we should be in sometime this fall, hopefully, as long as nothing else goes wrong. It now looks like it's wrapped in a plastic bag because we're waiting for the stucco people to start sometime this week. So it should start looking really good in about two weeks at least on the outside. And then we'll be painting and putting the floor in in the next month or so. So um, maybe some of you would like to get involved. I think there aren't any more little slips with David's email on. He's the managing the, pro, the, pro, the renovation for us. But uh, you can send the center an email if you want to get on that volunteer list for the new building, and I'll forward that to David, our construction manager. And I've been talking about appreciative joy uh, the last week at least, but I thought I'd begin tonight just checking in about the basic sitting instructions. It's nice to open it up to questions just to see that if anybody has questions about sitting or even comments about what you're noticing in your sitting practice, it's really good for all of us to reflect, even people who have been practicing for a while, like, am I clear what I'm doing when I sit? And it's okay that the answer is no, because sometimes that's just how it is. We're showing up, we're practicing, even though we don't really know what we're doing. But it's sometimes it's useful, even if not for yourself, it's useful for other people, to, for people to express, this is what's going on, this is how I understand it, this is what I'm confused about, this is what seems challenging, this seems to be working well. So... We'll take a little time, or a lot of time, if there are a lot of comments or questions. But does anybody have any questions about practice, about the basic sitting instructions, about what you're noticing? Stan. Sometimes I use, like, the sometimes to recognize and allow or acknowledge um, and investigate various ways of investigating. That's where I can spend time and then not attach. And I use, sometimes as I'm sitting, I'm feeling anger or frustration or fear, especially fear. Then I sometimes use that as a way to kind of guide what's going on in my body. So I'm assuming I mean, I'm using it just as a guide. <coughs> I'm not getting too hooked by it. And I can mm -hmm. always go back to being with the breath and other things. But sometimes emotion comes up. I'm assuming that can be okay. Yeah. I, I, I think actually that particular technique of, you know, I mean, this is just a convenient way of remembering the different aspects of mindfulness to recognize, to accept, to be interested or investigate to be free of attachments or non-attachment is the N. So the acronym is RAIN. And it's nice to have a particular way because what happens when the mind opens to what's difficult, and sometimes what's difficult, is, it's difficult because it's painful, but other things are difficult just because it's unknown. It's like a novel experience or it's, it's a subtle experience so we're not used to seeing it clearly. And when we're opening to something that's difficult, the tendency is to be confused by it, to be resistant. So it's nice to have for there to be a technique, almost like an anchor, something we can rest back into. Okay, R, can I recognize it? So you can almost put it in the, in the form of a question. Can the mind, can the heart recognize what's happening? What's happening? You can even ask yourself, you don't even need to make a long, you need to say, what? That's, that can be the recognition part. What? What's happening? What is predominant in the present moment? 
and uh, and then we rediscover the mind or the heart's capacity to actually connect that sort of uh, visceral almost awareness meeting the present moment object the awareness knowing this is how it is that's the connecting or the recognition and then the accepting the not acting it out it's like we're connecting and uh, we're not doing anything extra like immediately wanting to fix it or wanting to hold on or to tweak it so the acceptance is just letting recognition be enough letting knowing be enough just being so to accept something means we're willing to be vulnerable vulnerable or undefended because if something's being known it's like all of our sense of being in control demands that we do something about it even if it's a, just a neutral experience we want to do something about it like ignore it because it's neutral so when we're accepting we're accepting this is how it is and we're maintaining the recognition or the intimacy and then in that intimacy then uh, inviting an interest or even a deeper investigation and as as it reveals itself as we see more not taking it personally the non-attachment so i think it's a really useful way because otherwise if we don't if we don't have a concrete practice in difficult experience we tend to be swept away in our old habits which is to react to it it's one one way or another so to have a concrete experience it gives that part of the mind that wants to do something something to do that won't get in the way of knowing the experience as it is so we give the mind that tendency is to react we give it something to do but that doing doesn't get doesn't distort clear seeing or doesn't distort mindfulness that's why it's nice to have some techniques now ultimately we want to let go of all of those formal techniques and basically all that's left is to trust the present moment as it is but if we can't do that which is most of the time then we need something more concrete to support the practice but the practice doesn't depend on these techniques but when we need techniques we should have them and then when we don't need techniques we should be really ready to let them go because sometimes we're being open but there's part of the mind that says oh i should use rain you know and then we can just call that doubt oh that's just doubt like we're doubting that we can just trust just be open and receptive in the moment we feel like we have to do something more than that so sometimes that technique then and you just have to tease out like when is it supporting awareness a sense of presence and when is it actually a defense against being present like we're using rain to keep ourselves from being more radically present open to how it is thanks dan other comments or questions yeah dilda my question is about different techniques i find that we learn many techniques here and i find myself kind of doing a mishmash of all of those two i mean and it so happens that let's say we did this today so that was it for, for this practice mm-hmm. question is should there be some sort of time period or some yeah it's a really good question and it's different in different uh centers or different traditions where you might like in other places you might be given a specific technique and just asked to stick with it and here uh, in the vipassana tradition in general i mean i think it's different even among different insight meditation or vipassana teachers but in general uh there are a number of techniques that are offered and it's a little clumsy maybe because the sort of the different ways of relating to our meditation meditation practice it can be confusing like what should i do now but so that's why it's good to have that question because this may be an experience that a lot of us 
either have or are facing right now, like we're noticing the confusion that comes up or we're noticing like we use a technique and then we want to switch to some other technique because we have the thought that it's not working. So at some point when you've chopped, you know, when you've kind of heard enough, then it's good to make a decision. Well, when I sit, this is what I do. And so we have, we're basically giving the mind, um, we're giving the mind an instruction. Sitting practice is this for me. I sit down, I develop some composure in my practice, I mean my posture, I take a few deep breaths, and then I really work with the breath, or I work with the breath in this particular way. You know, I count my breath, or I note in and out, or like tonight, I use the in-breath to do a reflection on the natural sensitivity. And I use the exhalation to do a reflection on letting go of a more profound kind of relaxation or being undefended, being exposed to how it is. So whatever you do, but you make a commitment. So I think that's what you were suggesting. And I think it's really important to make a commitment. And I think it's even for some of us who tend to be more wishy-washy, if you're one of, if that's your personality type, then you might want to make a commitment for a certain period of time. Like, you know what? I think for the next six months, I'm just going to stick with this, come hell or high water. I'm just going to do this. Seems wholesome enough, and I'm just going to dig in with this particular technique. And sure, I might need to modify it, or I might need to make some adjustments, or there may be some times when there's so much pain coming up in my practice that I'm going to do loving-kindness practice instead, or I'm going to open my eyes and, and use sounds for mindfulness. But those are just little deviations. But the basic practice that we establish in every sit that we try to maintain through the sit has been defined for a period of time. And you can always do this in conjunction with uh, a teacher, like to talk to a teacher about what technique you've been using or what technique you're inclined to use. But ultimately, it really comes down to our sort of being reliant on our own experience and sort of seeing, well, what happens when I make this commitment? What happens when I practice without any particular commitment to practice? For other people, I think it's good to explore that too, that other end, especially if you're not a wishy-washy type. But if you have one of those personalities where you like things really defined, then it's nice to, to sort of force yourself to uh, basically what we're doing is we're recalling at the beginning of the set the deepest intention in the meditation practice, which is to be free. Right? That's why we all sit. We're all cultivating a sense of inner freedom. You can call that happiness or peace. But really, a, a, a buoyancy or a, a freedom from clinging to the different conditions, the different circumstances of your mind, of your body, of the present moment, just letting things come and go. So that's the basic intention. So for this kind of person, we would recall the deepest intention to be free of clinging, free of attachment, and then in a sense, we're maintaining that reflection of non-clinging to anything that arises. And then the particular techniques arise out of whatever occurs, whatever arises in our minds and our bodies. We'll just sort of draw on the particular technique that might be useful at this time. So that's another way to practice. One of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, really uh, used to emphasize that way of practice, practicing for experienced people who, who have kind of a set of tools, skillful ways to work with experience or uh, various um, techniques that illuminate aspects of awareness, the capacity of awareness to open to not react to whatever might arise. So sometimes the quality of awareness that we access is fearlessness, like a profound or powerful kind of trust in awareness. 
Sometimes it's a real childlike curiosity or awe. You know, what is this? Like, you know, we want to just listen. We want to really see. We want to really taste. So it's more that investigative quality. So there, you know, there are different aspects there, and you can find lists in the Buddha's teachings that sort of remind you of these, like the seven factors of awakening, which is mindfulness and energy and investigation and rapture, joy, as a quality that we can call upon, and tranquility and one-pointedness or concentration and equanimity, the sort of no preferences, impartial to what comes and goes. So we can call on one of those seven factors of awakening, one of those seven qualities in the mind, depending on the particular balance in the mind right now and the particular experience that's arising in our mind, in our heart, in our body. So I know that's not a specific answer. And I think there are real disadvantages to teaching in this way, especially for beginners, because for beginners, it's really nice for somebody to tell you exactly what to do and then just do it for a while. And if you're really a beginner, then I would advise you to probably sit down when you meditate and take a few minutes to open to the experience of the body and even feel free to make adjustments for that first few minutes of your sit and just kind of cultivating a sense of composure in your posture however best you can given how our bodies tend to be tight and however they might be you cultivate a sense of ease and composure and then if you can use the breath as an anchor for the attention but even so we're not like bringing the attention to the breath it's more that we're relaxing in the space of the present moment and knowing the breath in that context sort of relaxing, trusting awareness. And in that context, we're using the movement of the breath to give our mind that doesn't know what the hell to do in that space of awareness, you know, that space of the present moment, just sort of like a gift. Honey, please just pay attention to the breath. Don't worry. Don't get confused. Don't get overwhelmed. Don't space out. Don't go to sleep. Just pay attention to the breath. And in paying attention to the breath, we develop all seven of those qualities. We use the breath to develop tranquility. We use the breath to develop the strength of interest, like really getting interested in something as ordinary as the breath. Use the breath to develop mindfulness, which in this particular situation means not forgetting it. Because mindfulness is here is suggesting like a continuity, like, oh yeah, the breath, oh yeah, the breath, oh yeah, the breath, oh yeah, the breath. So that's the non-distraction, and then not forgetting it. And all the other seven factors, we can use the breath to develop all kinds of wholesome qualities in the mind, real strengths of the mind. You know, just like if we went to work out, we'd use different kinds of weights, different kinds of exercises to develop the body in different ways. We can use the breath as sort of like a universal weight system that it, it really will develop. If we know how to use it, we can develop all the different aspects of the mind or all the different aspects of the heart that help to bring it into balance. So that's what I'd recommend. Just really work with the breath. And even if you work with the breath unskillfully, it's a self-correcting system. So if you sit down, you compose your body, find some degree of ease in your body, and then keep turning the attention to the breath, keep turning the attention to the breath, you'll notice if you start doing something quote-unquote wrong, you're going to develop a lot of frustration and tension in your mind and body. And that will be your cue that something's a little off. So then what you do is you reflect on the tension, on the frustration. You kind of open to that. So then you're being mindful of being all frustrated, full of doubt, upset, whatever. And then, But you're not trying to figure it out. You're just allowing the openness of that frustration, of that doubt, to reveal what might be a little off in your practice. If we're patient, we'll then begin to have an intuitive sense of how to make adjustment. Of course, it's always useful to talk to people who have a lot of experience. So you can seek somebody out, whether it's asking a question at a program like this or 
having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me or another person that whose practice you really respect, and or even someone you know who, who you know is serious about the practice, and you just bring it up with that person, and what they say may be useful or may not be useful, or you check in books from uh, Buddhist teachers or meditation teachers that you respect or have found helpful in the past, find the chapter that might re relate to that particular issue in your practice. But everything ultimately has to be brought back to your own experience. Like, how does it illuminate your own experience? How might it be useful? If it's not useful, you just put that information on the shelf for a while, and it might be useful later, you know, that particular input. Does that help, Tito? Thanks for the question. Anybody else? Comments or questions about the practice? Particular patterns that seem to repeat in your sitting practice? Oh, yes. I forgot your name. Jesse. It's a really good question, and and as Dill was suggesting, you know, there are a lot of you know, there are a lot of uh, strategies depending on how attached the mind is to that particular unwholesome state, because sometimes the mind can be relatively caught up, let's say, in anger or irritation about somebody who did something to us, and we're just the mind is just kind of chewing on it. But there's some sense of awareness that the mind is chewing on it. So we're not blind. I mean, if we're blind, then we're totally blind. There's nothing we can do about it. But if there's some moments of awareness that the mind is caught, then probably I'll, I'll try to go through this set of strategies from the most subtle and probably the most skillful to less subtle practices, less subtle techniques. So the most subtle technique then is, you know, you can go back to what, um, Stan, thank you, I was going to say Scott, <laughs> I don't know why, what Stan was saying, where you use RAIN as an acronym, so you're, you're, you're basically, there's some thread of wisdom that says, you know, I'm attached, I'm caught, and there is a possibility of being more mindful with this. And so we don't immediately want to run away from it, and we don't want to immediately try to fix it. But we want to remember that there is a possibility just to be open to this, to be interested in this, to not act it out, to accept it, to not be attached to it. You know, so you'd go work through those four things, to recognize it, which means to connect, which is if it's an if it's a afflictive state, then that means it's going to be painful. When you recognize it or when you connect with it, it will be painful. And then that's why we have to practice acceptance. And then if we stabilize with the recognition and the acceptance, then we can practice being more intimate, more interested in it. So we're allowing it to reveal itself, in a sense, to bloom without attachment, so non-attachment, non-identification. Now that isn't always, sometimes the afflictive state, the irritation is so compelling, we're so caught, identified with the content of it, that there's in a sense no space. And so it's almost better to skillfully retreat from it. So we might, we might first just name it, oh, irritation is like this. And then recognizing how attached, how caught up, we might um, turn the attention back to the breath or turn the attention to hearing, to some neutral object where the mind is more comfortable and can, you know, the mind like regains its composure, a sense of spaciousness, a sense of safety. Sometimes if 
if our practice is strong, we don't even need to turn the attention away. It's just like, so here's the irritation, and we're caught up in it, we're identified with it, and then we recognize we're identified with it, and then it's almost as if we're looking right through the irritation and we're seeing space, or feeling a sense of space, or even hearing a sense of space, or st- like the stillness or the silence in which this irritation, this being attached and caught up is happening. So it's not even like we have to turn the attention to sounds or turn the attention to the body sitting or to the breath. But it's like right there, we just are noticing the space of the present moment. That's our object of meditation. And to do that, we have to let go of attachment to the story of being the guy who's irritated or whatever our story is. So the second strategy then, this sort of middle strategy in terms of subtle to gross, is to uh, take care of the mind, to recompose the mind by opening to something wholesome, ordinary, wholesome, rejuvenating. And uh, the more... Uh, so we're not like even pushing away the irritation, but rather we're turning the attention to something else, whether it's seeing something wholesome right there in the midst of the irritation or actually turning the attention to sounds or to the body sitting or to the breath in the body. And then uh, uh, an even more forceful technique would be to uh, to in a sense suppress to do something to suppress the mind going back to those thoughts getting identified with those thoughts so we might, we might even open our eyes to support like the recognition of space and hearing we might actually open our eyes if they've been closed so here we are it's much harder to be lost in thought like about what she said to me if we're noticing oh there's a room here right because all of a sudden when the eyes open, we recognize, I'm here. I'm not in that situation I'm thinking about, but I'm here in the space of this room. There are these sounds, this visual experience. It's here and now. And that's a thought, and I'm here. Some people might get up and do a walking practice because it's more concrete. It's easier to use the walking practice to kind of suppress the tendency to return to what's not wholesome. And on and on. I mean, there are many other gross activities you can engage in that are harmless, that are wholesome, like um, knitting or taking a bath or gardening or washing the dishes. So you're giving yourself something to do, and you're, and you're practicing absorbing into those ordinary wholesome activities as a way of suppressing, keeping your mind from dwelling, obsessing in ways that aren't helpful. And I think it's really worthwhile to do this wholeheartedly. And I think uh, what Jessie is probably suggesting in her comment is that she's noticing that obsessing is never helpful. Obsessing in an unskillful way is never help- helpful. But part of the obsession is the sense that if I only think about this a little bit more, it will be useful. <laughs> but with a sense, it, there's probably an inkling of wisdom that's saying, you know, this isn't helping. You know, this is just making the heart tighter. And, and the, the destructive thing about obsessing is we tend to repeat in the mind, you know, attitudes and even imagine activities, actions, words that are not going to be helpful. But if we imagine them enough, if we obsess on them enough, we will act them out. We think we can get away with it. Or I'm just thinking about what I'd like to say to that person. But if we think about it enough, it's very likely we're going to actually say it. And even if we don't say it, even if we say, I'm sorry, what the tone of our voice, what the person will really hear is, this person isn't saying they're sorry. They're saying, <laughs> So even if we don't act it out outwardly, people energetically pick up our attitude. And so the more we allow ourselves to obsess in a destructive or unskillful way, it kind of causes 
the whole pattern to repeat or to kind of strengthen, you know, whatever, whatever, however we're kind of connected with other beings. It sort of has its own life. We're feeding it in a way. Stan. Sure. So if I'm being, if I'm irritated, you said it an analogy or that example, I mean, personally I get scared if I'm saying, let's go back to the breath, because I notice for myself, and it's like, let's go back to the breath and make it go away. Yeah, okay, yeah. I want to fight it. And so what's the wisdom so I'm not fighting it? Because yeah. that's why I think I'm more attracted to yeah, exactly. And this is an important instruction, like Stan's been practicing for a while. So uh, people who have some history with the practice, you, there's a real habit of using techniques to avoid what's difficult and scary. And so the real sign of a maturing in practice is a, is a, a looking, an, an interest in edges, what's difficult. What is novel, like what we haven't seen before? And you know, like some teachers would even say, learning to die to certain experiences. So uh, it's a it's an expression of confidence and awareness. Like I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just going to open to this, even if it turns out to be a real mess. And so it sometimes we have to open to something, even though we do end up getting identified with it and spinning, getting caught up spinning. But if we never make that mistake, we may be always erring on the side of running away from it when we don't actually need to run away from it. So sometimes it's good to, to really stay there in a messy experience, like where there's a lot of emotion. And we're having the impulse to go back to the breath, open the eyes, do walking practice. but. You know, we've done that a lot, and we're going, we're just sort of encouraging ourselves, well, I'm not moving. I mean, not physically moving, but also I'm not moving the attention. This is predominant. This is how it is. I have confidence in this wisdom, this wise space of awareness to basically hold, to receive what's ever true in this moment. Let this kill me if it's going to kill me. Let this memory, let this restlessness, this, let this sadness, let this lust kill me. But I'm not trying to do it harm. I'm not trying to do anybody harm. I'm here in a loving way with the only commitment, the only intention is to understand it as it actually is. So we can have a lot of confidence in that deep spiritual intention to want to understand the present moment, whatever is alive in us, whatever is happening, to want to understand it. That this is not harmful. This should not create psychological problems for any being, you know. What could be dangerous about this intention to want to understand? So we're kind of rallying our confidence and awareness and wise attention. So that may be like how you want to sort of orient your mind because you've been practicing for a while and because you're not it sounds like you're noticing this tendency to rely on maybe a more uh, sort of formal structure when just sitting in the middle of the mess may reveal a kind of strength in your heart that you haven't fully recognized that you can then will be, will be a real anchor or refuge this is the great this is the great insight that slowly mostly slowly sometimes quickly but mostly slowly evolves when you when you practice regularly is we're not afraid of messes whether it's just something going on inside our mind or even in our lives like a messy divorce or a messy losing our job or living in a country that seems to be crazy or you know whatever mess we happen to be in and that our composure, that quality of love and patience and forgiveness, it doesn't get disturbed when things get really messy around us. That doesn't mean that we're not acting out, but there's also, even though we're acting out, like even if we're expressing our greed, expressing our anger, 
there's also a sense of understanding. Oh, this is how it is. This is anger and it's like this. The thoughts people have about practice? Um, I've been coming here since October and uh, tonight I really had a hard time not going somewhere else in my mind, especially work. It's stressful right now. And while I was sitting here meditating, I was going, you know, going through problem solving and making up schedules and all this kind of stuff. It's and to me that, you know, if I look at what is this, it's fear, most most likely fear of the mess of not taking care of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> and I, I sometimes wonder, if, you know, is it sometimes best to get up and take care of all this stuff? <laughs> or mm-hmm. you know, how can I trust the meditation yeah. process and let there be a mess? If, you know, like, it's okay for me to come here on a Sunday night and spend an hour and a half here and not take care of it. I don't even know what I'm trying to ask. Oh, we all do. <laughs> Is there anybody in this room who doesn't understand a question? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it, it, it really comes to like, there is a lot to do. And the question is, human beings have been responding to how much there is to do for a long time. And look, look where we've gotten ourselves. <laughs> So maybe it's time to cultivate a different response to having a lot to do. Because we're all, when it comes right down to it, we're animals trying to survive. And, and beyond that, we're psychological beings trying to survive. So it's not, it's not even that we're just physical creatures who want shelter and food. We're psychological creatures who want to be loved, who want respect, who want power, you know. And that makes it even more complicated. Our survival is even more complicated because of that. And this, this is that endlessness that the Buddha pointed to in terms of samsara, the cycles of suffering. Because we're always respo- uh, responding to this sense of uh, things not being done. There's always more that we can do. Like, when do we have enough security? Do you know any human being that feels like I have enough security from old age, from sickness, from poverty, from not being loved, from not having enough power? No. Every human being, no matter who they are, is constantly dealing with these, reacting to these things of not having enough. Even if they're, you know, the most beautiful, healthy, young, wealthy, intelligent human being in the world. They're still basically in the same boat we're in. So then, that reflecting on that, it really can encourage us. Well, maybe I should cultivate. Not that we're going to give up. I mean, if you started sitting 20 hours a day, all the time, then you might reflect on like, are you avoiding? Are you doing it to avoid something? But to, in a reasonable way to cultivate. A, a, a reflection on the tendency to always want to fix life, to always want to do the next thing, to want to reflect on whether that's wholesome or not, that seems really wise. Because so many human beings do it without reflecting on it, and this is where we've gotten ourselves. So maybe it's time for us now to actually reflect on that drivenness, to see, like, is it arising from a wholesome place? Does it lead to a wholesome place? Or is it just perpetuating the stress and the suffering in our lives? And that's really what we do. So what you described actually could be a very useful, powerful sit, even though if you told your friends about it, they would think, well, why the heck would you want to sit if all you're doing is planning your Monday? But sitting here and noticing that it's really a kind of insanity because here you are sitting at common ground and yet you're spinning you know, in this way. But you're doing more than that. You're aware of it, at least in moments. You're aware that you're thinking. You're aware that you're planning. You're aware that you're obsessing. And hopefully in moments you're aware that it's not useful. That's a deep insight. And that deep insight undermines the tendency of the mind 
to keep going in that direction. But it's like the Titanic, that habit of obsessing, of worrying, of planning, of struggling. It's like this huge edifice moving. It's got a lot of weight and momentum. So it takes a lot of patience to undermine it, to, to reorient the sort of direction of our life. Because that habit has been reinforced so long, so much. So we just sitting in, this is what I was saying just a few minutes earlier, you know, about learning to sit in the mess. So that is the mess. And to just to even have a, a slight degree of openness and undefendedness in that mess is profound. Because most human beings don't allow themselves to see that mess. They're just completely absorbed into that mess, living it out. But there's no sense of awareness of being sort of driven in this way. Most of the time, human beings aren't aware of that. So this is something to be deeply grateful for, like to have those moments, to have the space in your life and the inclination in your mind to actually sit with this kind of mess. And you, and you can probably notice how it's changing. Like, so as you do go about your day tomorrow, you might just have a sense that there's just a little bit more spaciousness, more porousness in your uh, habit of trying to get things done, trying to become somebody, trying to avoid this. There's just a sense of more space, more buoyancy, less seriousness. You're still driven, but you kind of know this is drivenness, and it's like this. There's a sense of space around the drivenness. Slowly it creeps in. I tell and my uh, group that I lead down in Northfield, Minnesota, we come up with a term that we all like, which is called creeping spaciousness. It's like it creeps in. It's like all of a sudden we notice that there's just more spaciousness in our lives than there used to be. We don't know how it got there even, because it doesn't seem necessarily related to sitting in that mess that you described. But I think there's a strong relationship. The more we sit in the mess, sitting in the mess means there's some spaciousness. If there's no spaciousness, you will get up. You just get up, even if you're not supposed to get up. You just get up and walk out. <laughs> like Pema Children has this great, she's a wonderful uh, Tibetan nun, a Western Tibetan nun, and, and well-known teacher around the world now, but especially in the States. And she's got this wonderful line where she says, never underestimate the inclination to bolt <laughs> in talking about meditation practice. More, to, uh, more time, so if you have any other questions. John. Um, pain. Uh, I recently had an opportunity to do some longer sits, and um, I found that physical pain in my body uh, reduced me to feeling like I, had, I really didn't know how to meditate. Um, uh, it's a tough line to know when I'm being not attached, as in just sort of noticing the pain somewhere else in the room, and when I'm actually avoiding it. It was suggested that I try to go into it um, or catch it when it first arises. And I mean, I feel like I'm playing with those edges, but still sometimes just coming up with sort of a macho, I'm going to sit <coughs> no matter what, and just sort of feeling... Um, flabbergasted and sort of doubt, a lot of doubt arising in my inability to um, well, I know I don't, it's nothing to be solved but that's the inclination yeah well I used to I used to feel more inclined you know in my own practice to just sit with pain but now I, I really uh, appreciate the importance of the mind being relaxed and that there being sufficient joy and spaciousness. Now, if you can do that without moving the body, then, then you should do that. You know, however you might be able to do that. But there's, because a lot of us just want to be a good meditator and do it right, there's a tendency to uh, imitate being a good meditator by not moving, by sticking with it. And what we really learn well, then, is how to resist pain, how to struggle with pain, how not to move. But these aren't really useful skills to have, you know. And it actually tends to make the mind tighter. 
and then and then we tend to forget what the practice is really about, which is being free of clinging, free of attachment. So I think it can be quite useful to sit with pain, but there needs to be some degree of composure or spaciousness in the mind for it to actually be useful. And that's what you have to assess. If there's no composure, no spaciousness in the mind, then try something else. Find some skillful way of relating or some skillful thing to do with your mind so that you're not just there resisting the pain, struggling with the pain, and you're not just like spacing out and thinking about a fantasy vacation. So practice mindfulness with something else, even if it means standing up or adjusting your posture. But when you have some confidence, then don't... See, the, the trouble with then giving yourself that permission is then there's a tendency to always take that permission when you don't need it, when there is enough composure, when you have enough confidence and awareness, when you have other skills to bring up in the moment to help support awareness with this pain. So, you know, it sort of just depends on how we need to be encouraged. Should we be encouraging ourselves to stay put? Or should we be encouraging ourselves to retreat, skillfully retreat, and to bring more joy, more composure, more spaciousness into the mind. Again, you know, there's, it's, you can't really give an easy answer. And you see, one of the things you should be seeing from a lot of my responses tonight, that in the end, it all, it's all about self-reliance. I mean, you have to use your own experience, how you're seeing your own experience, to decide, is what I'm doing skillful or not? And if it's not skillful, then make an adjustment. Like if how you've decided to relate or to, to practice, if it's not supporting insight and awareness, clarity, then make an adjustment. Mm -hmm. Paul, um, this morning when I was distracted as I was meditating, I, I had this thought um, that whatever this distraction is, is absolutely necessary right now. And then I was really grateful for that thought because uh, I realized it, it is. It is what it is. It's, it's absolutely necessary right now that I be distracted and that I'm noticing it and then things come and go. But just that feeling, to, I don't have to struggle against this and I don't have to, to just, you know, I was just so grateful that, oh, I can sit here and be distracted right now. So. Yeah. And and you'll see in how Paul described his practice, you know, how um, unique it is, how people will, like, what I would call that is like flipping from wrong attitude or wrong view to right view. And and there are millions of ways to do that. And it's in a way it's personal to our mind how we go from seeing the distraction as bad. I'm a bad meditator. I'm not meditating right. I should be punished. <laughs> to, to like flipping to right view. Right view is the view that everything belongs. Everything is allowed to arise and pass away. To include everything, to welcome everything. That's right view. And from a Buddhist point of view or from this uh, tradition of practice. So, yeah, that, that sounds great. And uh, however we can remember that way of relating, that way of being, whatever supports that reorientation of the mind, great. And it may work, what we do may work for a while, and then all of a sudden it feels a little forced, you know, and it doesn't work anymore. And then we're in the wilderness again for a while until we find another way, you know, to reconnect with that wise, spacious way of relating, which is, of course, in a sense, our birthright. I mean, it's not like we actually have to do anything. It's more about what's in the way. Like, how do we, how do we abandon the things that are obscuring this open, loving attention? Because awareness, it's like we're swimming in the this pure 
non-reactive awareness. But it's obscured by all of our habits of reaction, of struggling. And so it's more about abandoning the identification with what's in the way. Mike? Well, I think that's actually a really, a really profound thing you just said, uh, that re- and that reorientation. I mean, I think that's the idea of sitting in your sit and thinking about your work tomorrow and then realizing you're thinking of your work tomorrow. That, I mean, that's a very powerful thing. I think that's where that creeping spaciousness comes from. Yeah. It's all of a sudden, I'm seeing, it, it's like the idea that I pray for tolerance and then later that day I end up in a traffic jam. And you can almost, it's almost something to laugh at. Yeah. 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 Thanks. And and one of the telltale signs of this kind of recognition is uh, gratitude. And we're not even like we know what to be grateful for, but where there's just this experience of gratitude or trusting life. And it's not that life is all of a sudden pretty. I mean, clearly life is not pretty. There's a lot of messiness in life. We don't have to look far to see it. But yet there's a kind of gratitude and trust of life as it is, as messy as it is. It seems a paradox, but it seems to be a pretty universal experience for people who cultivate this path of awakening or this path of awareness. And it's, a, it's another great example of one of the statements that the heart is pure. It's the defilements that cover it. Yeah. And that's just a great way of looking at some of those defilements. Yeah. yeah. This is a good place to end. So let's just take a few seconds. We'll let go of the words. Take a few breaths together. And uh, appreciating... Like notice the goodness, even if our body hurts, even if we're sleepy or whatever. Just notice a sense of wholesomeness, having gotten here tonight, having practiced as best as we could. Appreciate the goodness of this group of people that we get to hang out with, share space with. And also appreciating this ancient but really practical spiritual tradition that we can tap into that somehow has shown up in this corner of Minneapolis that we get to do our part now to cultivate the teachings, make them real in our own heart, in our lives, and to be a cause for peace, for wisdom, for true compassion kindness in the world, supporting ourselves, supporting all beings with our practice. May all beings be free from suffering and free from the causes of suffering. May all beings be at ease. Thanks again for coming, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.